Hello, everybody. This is Father Tom Provenzano welcoming you to another episode of the Axe Podcast. And today we're going to take a continuing look at the season of Lent and to kind of just maybe fill in some blanks from the last episode, talk about the gospel reading in particular for the second Sunday of Lent coming up this weekend, and then shifting gears, taking a look at three dystopian novels, asking the question first, what is a dystopian novel, (laughs) and what do they mean, and what were these dystopian novels trying to say, what were these writers of these novels trying to say about society and society's future? And now let us begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. O God, who have commanded us to listen to your beloved Son, be pleased, we pray, to nourish us inwardly by your word, that with spiritual sight made pure, we may rejoice to behold your glory. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God forever and ever. Amen. Very help of Christians, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So yeah, we're going to start off, uh, again, continuing our, our reflection a little bit on just the season of Lent in general and just an overview of it. I know that I went over some things last week, but I wanted to kind of maybe fill in some gaps. I mean, I know we're already in the the uh, end of the first week, going into the second week of the season, so hopefully we've uh, figured out the Lenten practice we're going to follow. We understand that uh, on Fridays during Lent uh, are days of abstinence from meat. Okay, uh, some places in Latin America and some places in other areas, the local bishops' conferences can substitute something, you know, some other sacrifice for that. But uh, in the United States, anyway, the practice is to abstain from meat on on Friday. Um. We understand that there's 40 days of Lent. I think I went over last time about 40 being that important number in the uh, Bible of the 40 years that the Israelites were in the desert and the 40 days that Jesus was in the desert. And in a way, during this Lenten season, we are following in the desert with Christ. Now, how we get the 40 days uh, and different uh, Christian groups that follow a liturgical calendar, uh, do it a little bit differently, Uh, but we begin on Ash Wednesday because Sundays, even though Sundays are a part of Lent, you know, I don't don't think it's technically correct to say that they're not a part of Lent, they are, but but Sundays are always celebrations of the resurrection of the Lord, and we should never be fasting on a Sunday. and I know I've been told we should never say never, but it sort of goes against the spirit of what that day is about, whether that Sunday is during the Lenten uh, time or during Advent or Christmas or whatever time of year it, it's falling. It's always a day when we're remembering our Lord and Savior's resurrection. It's always a celebration of the Paschal mystery. And so it's always a motive for rejoicing. So, we begin, we've had this tradition of beginning on the Wednesday before so that we get those, It's it ends up being a full 40 days of 
uh, of penance. Uh, because again, you don't count those Sundays as days of penance. So that if you, there's 44 days actually, if you want to look at it, between Ash, uh, Ash Wednesday and uh, Easter Sunday. Uh, but in terms of for fasting purposes, we had we add, we've added those extra days at the beginning. Now, the question that always comes up: if Sundays are days of celebration and are days when we uh, remember the resurrection of the Lord, we shouldn't be fasting. Does that mean I can take an exception uh, from my Lenten penance if I've given up sweets or if I've given up a drinking or if I've given up whatever it is that you've, you've given up, beverages, uh, uh, hard or soft? Uh, you know, there are things that are permissible and there are things that are advisable. And we have to make that distinction in our head. It may be permissible on a Sunday, uh, you know, to have that candy bar or to have that Coca-Cola or to have that adult beverage. But if you feel like it's something that's going to derail you, if you feel that getting back on the horse on Monday is going to be more difficult, then I would suggest to you very strongly that you, you keep to your Lenten practice. Okay, This is what we call a, a prudential decision, something that you, uh, sort of in your good judgment, you knowing yourself, uh, need to make up for yourself. Okay, I can't really tell you or I wouldn't tell you what to do beyond what I said. If you think that going back to the practice on Monday won't be a problem, fine. If you think that going back to your Lenten uh, penance on Monday is going to be more difficult by you taking that sort of free day, then I suggest you don't do it. The The season of Lent itself, or the time of Lent itself, as I said, goes from Ash Wednesday. And we commonly think of it as ending uh, you know, on Holy Saturday or on Easter Sunday. But in reality, Lent really comes to an end uh, with the Mass of the Lord's Supper on Holy Thursday night during Holy Week. Now, in a later episode, I'm going to talk in more detail about Holy Week and about the Easter, what's called the Easter Triduum, which are the three kind of central celebrations. Holy Thursday, Good Friday, and the Easter Vigil on on Holy Saturday. Uh, so I'm not going to go into a lot of detail about that right now. Uh, some people have the impression, though, then they hear that, they say, well, Lent ends on Holy Thursday. That means, again, I can give up, you know, I could stop my fasting or, you know, it's party time already. No, not exactly. There's a thing called the Paschal Fast, which admittedly is optional, uh, in the sense that you don't have to follow it, but if you, you know, if you remember, Good Friday is one of those days of fasting and abstinence, and so the idea would be is that from the time that the Mass of the Lord's Supper happens on Thursday night, okay, that really should begin our fast. And then really we should extend it out into the Saturday. Okay. And if it's, it's again, 
it's advisable. Okay, Friday is not advisable. Friday is a day of 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 fasting and, and abstinence. But extending it into the Saturday is something that comes under advisement. It's suggested, but it's not something that's mandatory. Uh, but still, it's something that's good. Uh, and it keeps us in that meditative spirit. And it really helps us, I think, participate in a more intense way in those three days. Now, there's something we have to keep very clear about the fasting and abstinence. If if you are a diabetic, if you are someone who suffers from some other illness, okay, you are not required to fast. Okay, fasting, uh, Basically, anyone over 14 is expected to abstain, uh, fast and abstain, up to the age of 59. And then after 59, the law of abstinence from meat still holds, but the law from fasting doesn't. But but you have to keep in mind that what fasting, there, there's an objective element to fasting, and then there's maybe a subjective element to it as well. Norm, normally, we would say that fasting involves uh, the allowance of one main meal during the day, and then if it's needed, two smaller meals, but two smaller meals that do not equal, that are t- that if you put them together are less than what that main meal would be. Um, you know, again, your health has a lot to do with. Uh, how you're going to fast. And if because of your health you cannot, that's not something you should feel bad about. Uh, also, the way maybe someone who works manual labor, works in a work site uh, in construction, or is a farmer out in the field and is doing a lot of heavy physical labor, is going to approach fasting different than than someone like myself who sits behind a desk and pushes paper. Okay, they both should fast, but again, what's going to constitute a meal for them, and and what's going to constitute maybe eating too much, uh, is going to be different, considering the the different physical exertions that the that the, the 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 they have in in their jobs. So all those things need to be kept in mind as well. If we really take a look at the the season of of Lent in terms of the liturgy, from Ash Wednesday really through roughly the first five weeks, uh, the focus is really on, you know, what is the nature of penance, on the need for repentance, on uh, really what it means to uh, be renewed in the Lord. If we look specifically, and again, the next episode, I'm going to look more specifically at the third, fourth, and fifth Sundays, which are the Sundays when what we call the scrutinies happen. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that. Those are Sundays when the focus is very much on baptism and the preparation for baptism. And, you know, the baptism as an entering into uh, the Paschal Mystery of Christ. And so it very much has to do with 
how do we live the Christian mystery now? You know, Christ died and rose 2,000 years ago. It's an historical event in the past, but its effects are still with us here in the present, and we get to participate through the liturgy in those saving events. It's not so much caught up with the historical event itself as with uh, the fruits of that event and what that, what that event means to us right now. Beginning the fifth week, uh, we begin to see a shift and the, the readings and the prayers tend to focus more directly on the historical event and on those events that led up directly to our Lord's uh, dying and rising. This is a tension which is at work not just in the Lenten season, but also in the Advent season. You could see a very clear, and during Advent, there's a very clear kind of demarcation between the, the first part of Advent up to about the 17th of December, 16th of December, uh, again, dealing with our Lord's second coming and preparing ourselves for the coming of the Lord at the end of time. And then again, the last, the, the novena, essentially, the last nine or ten days that deals specifically with those historical events leading up to Jesus' birth. And also, even within how we understand the liturgy, there's this tension. Because on the, on the one hand, the liturgy is a representation of our Lord's sacrifice on Calvary. And in, and in a way, you could say we're made to participate in that sacrifice. But at the same time, it's not just a looking backward or even a mystical participation in the past, but it is a participation here and now of the heavenly reality. I, I know this is maybe hard for us Sometimes who, uh, you know, go to Mass on Sunday and the, the choir might not be, you know, quite as sharp as we would like it to be. And the priest is a terrible preacher, doesn't, can't get, out, can't, can't get out of his own way. You keep looking at your watch practically from the minute he's opening his mouth. And, you know, it just the whole thing doesn't seem to lift your mind and heart. Uh, but this is where you need to understand that, no, there is something deeper going on here, going on here beyond how good the choir is, beyond how good a preacher the priest may be, uh, though I, you know, pray for your priest and, you know, hopefully uh, you have good ones that, that preach well. I know many, many, many who do. But you're getting connected to the here and now. You're getting connected with the heavenly reality in the here and now. And during the celebration of the Eucharist and that taking of communion is somehow a foreshadowing of what our relationship is going to be with Christ in heaven, where we will commune together as a community and intimately with Christ. And he gave us this bread of life as a sign and a symbol of that heavenly reality. And it's his death and resurrection that made, and specifically his passion, that made that gift possible and opened it up for us. Now, looking at uh, 
the second Sunday of Lent, which is coming up uh, again tomorrow as uh, as I record this, uh, it's good to look at, I think, I've always found, this is a personal uh, strategy, if you will, of when I'm preaching and, and when I'm sort of just meditating on these readings, is to really look at the first two weeks of... Uh, the first two Sundays, excuse me, of Lent, and to look at them sort of as a pair that kind of match together. If you remember last Sunday, the first Sunday, we heard of Jesus's temptation in the desert. Now, every first Sunday of Lent at Mass, you're going to hear the temptation in the desert. It's just that each year, if you remember, three-year cycle of readings, we hear the account from a different evangelist. So this year, because Mark is the gospel we're going to be hearing the majority of Sundays, especially during ordinary time, we hear it from Mark's gospel. And the same is with tomorrow's reading, the second Sunday's reading, which is also from Mark's gospel, which is the Transfiguration. So no matter what year it is, you're always going to hear on the first Sunday the temptation in the desert. You're always going to hear the second Sunday from the transfiguration. But it's going to come from different evangelists, depending on uh, the liturgical year. So this year is dedicated to Mark. So for these two first Sundays, we hear from Mark. Now as Lent goes on, we're going to be hearing more and more from John's gospel. And if you remember, that's really where John's gospel comes in. Uh, There's no year dedicated to John, but uh, during Lent and especially during the Easter season, we uh, hear from selections of John's gospel. And again, as we get deeper into Lent and Easter, I'll I'll talk about why that may be, that the uh, framers of the of the of the lectionary may have made that choice. Um, what you'll notice about Mark's gospel is that it's the shortest of the four gospel accounts. It gives the, the least detail, and especially in terms of this account of the temptation, it's very, very terse, very short, concise. He goes out to the desert. He's after his baptism. He's tem- tempted by the devil. He's ministered. He's surrounded by wild animals, and he he's ministered to by angels. Okay, that's it. We don't actually hear the list of temptations the way we do in uh, the other two accounts of of Matthew and Luke. Tomorrow, as I said, we hear the transfiguration. And like I said, I, I really believe that these two form, in a way, kind of bookends to one another. Okay, They're companions to one another. The first reading uh, of The Temptation kind of reminds us that the world, uh, spiritually speaking, can be a dangerous place. There are obstacles. There are temptations. There are 
people's places and things, if you will, for lack of a better way of putting it, which work against our repentance and against our growing in our life in Christ. Some of these are demonic. And I, and I know that there's a, the last 150 years or so, there's this tendency of, of making, uh, you know, the idea of demons or the devil a, a psychological construct. But, but no, it's, it's not. It's not a psychological construct. In one sense, in a metaphorical way, I will agree. We can use the term metaphorically uh, to talk about uh, whatever, whatever psychological issues or emotional issues people may have. But that doesn't change the fact that the devil is real. Uh, the demonic is active in the world. It is seeking to separate us from Christ. That being said, we shouldn't be looking for devils and demons under every bed and under every rock. Uh, there's an old book written in, the, I believe, the 15th or 15 or 1600s called The uh, Spiritual Combat, which sort of fell out of favor for a while and in the last 10 or 15 years has sort of come back uh, and it's sort of popped up again in various forms, uh, some updated forms and some in the original form. But, you know, traditionally when people thought of think of the spiritual combat, they're thinking of exactly that, our spiritual life as a battle against Satan. And that's sort of why that book kind of fell into disrepute because it, it, that's the way people thought of it. And again, with this attempt to, psycholo uh, to make psychological the demonic, uh, again, it sort of fell out of favor. But, you know, if you really read the book, the author is very clear about something, that temptation comes from many different directions. The temptation comes from the devil, but temptation also comes from within ourselves, from within our own weaknesses. And that in a way, uh, because of our fallen nature, we almost don't need the devil in order to be tempted. Again, which does not mean he doesn't, he does. Uh, and he makes it very clear also that you, you shouldn't spend too much time trying to figure out where the temptation is coming from. Is the temptation coming from the demonic or is the temptation coming from some personal weakness uh, that I have? It's, you, you, you drive yourself crazy doing it, basically. Just understand what tempts you and avoid it. And live, and grow in a life of virtue, okay? Choose the good and reject the bad, okay? And don't worry so much where, again, where exactly the temptation is coming from. Now, I, I do think that you can, and I'll maybe save this for another day because I don't want to get too bogged down in this. I think there are ways of at least understanding when a temptation might be coming, from the demonic okay i think if uh, I, I do believe most temptations just really involve our own weaknesses and uh our own lack of trust in christ and our own kind of personal discipline lack of discipline that is but i uh but there's definitely instances where the where i think the devil tempts directly and i'll, I'll just say that i think it's if if a temptation comes over you swiftly and suddenly out of nowhere, and especially directed towards something 
that you might never have been tempted over before, uh, that might be an indication that it's something other than just something coming from within yourself. Okay. And you also have to judge other, there's other situations surrounding that as well. And I've had personal experience with that. And I don't, again, I don't want to go too far down that path, but the bottom line is yes, the, the, the road is long and the road can be difficult, but at the same time, our Lord offers the apostles and specifically Peter, James, and John, this vision of the transfiguration, this vision of Christ glorified. Okay. They go up the mountain with Jesus of Nazareth, and they have this vision of the glorified Christ, and with him, Moses and Elijah. Moses, who represents the law, and Elijah representing the prophets, and the two together witness to Christ, that Jesus is the Christ, he is the Messiah, he is the anointed one, and that through the difficulties, through the hardships, the apostles need to always remember this, and need to remember that Christ truly is the Lord. Just a, a couple of uh, kind of clarifications to you know wrap up this part of it. Uh, in saying that they went up the mountain with Jesus of Nazareth and had this vision of Christ glorified, does not mean that I think they, that these are two different people, obviously. I'm just trying to imagine what objections people might have. Obviously, Jesus of Nazareth is Christ. <laughs> okay. The, the Christ of faith is the Jesus of history. The two things really can't be separated from one another, and I don't believe should be separated from one another. But in terms of their their human perceptions, uh, we don't know where exactly the apostles are at yet in terms of their understanding of who Jesus is and what he's about. And certainly the idea that the Messiah would be divine is something that would have been sort of beyond their uh, capacity to to understand or to even you know accept or you know to conceive of. That's why when Peter makes that profession of faith, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the Living God, adds that Son of the Living God onto there. Jesus says, "Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, Simon, uh, but my Father in heaven." This is a special revelation that's been given to you. Flesh and blood, your human reason can't figure this out. Uh, but it is something that's been revealed to you, and now it's for you to go and to profess it. And, and blessed are you, uh, not because you're so smart, <laughs> but because God uh, revealed this thing to you. Uh, the other uh, would be, and now I'm having a kind of a, a brain spasm here. I can't quite uh, remember what the second point was. Um it had to do with temptation. So all, I mean, at, at its root, all temptation uh, comes from the demonic. But it's just that some are direct and some are indirect. Okay. Uh, as I said, if you go back to the garden, you know, obviously 
you know, Eve didn't think of uh, Adam and Eve didn't think of transgressing on their own. There was a suggestion put in there by the devil. So yes, the the the, the Satan is the root of all temptation. But in the living out of our everyday life, again, sometimes those temptations come directly, and sometimes those temptations really just come indirectly by the fact that we're weak and we're compromised. But to get back to the, the point of the reading for uh, the second Sunday, we know that in Christ we have our victory, and that in Christ we have our resurrection. And just as one little parenthesis for this, why is it that Moses and Elijah appear? I mean, we can say, well, Moses, it's sort of easy, because Moses, um, along with Abraham, are kind of seen as the foundational figures of, of Judaism. Uh, but then you might say, why didn't Abraham appear instead of uh, Moses? Ab- uh, Abraham is the patriarch. By, and we call them, you know, three faiths, uh, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam that were kind of born of, of uh, Abraham's uh, profession of faith in, in the one monotheistic God. And why Elijah, many prophets, many prophets, uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, many that are more prominent and you could argue greater than, than Elijah. The fact is, is that the reason why those two appear is that Scripture testifies to the, to the fact that Elijah is brought up to heaven, body and soul. Okay. And also there's a tradition, it's not in Scripture directly, but there's a tradition that Moses, like our Blessed Mother, had been assumed into heaven. So that uh, there's a, there's a, I believe it's, I don't know if it's a letter of James, I forget which one it is, that talks about uh, the angels fighting over, angels and demons fighting over uh, Moses' body. Uh who was going to take possession of, of Moses's body after he had, had died. Um, so yeah, so that there's this heavenly reality that is testifying to Jesus Christ and that he is the resurrection and the life. Shifting gears right now, I wanted to take a look at three books that were written in the 20th century, first half of the 20th century, that are often referred to as being uh, dystopian in nature. Uh, sometimes you might find them even in the, the, the science fiction section, even though I don't really think they fit necessarily in, in science fiction. Uh, but all of them are attempting to be prophetic or uh, in terms of predicting what the future could look like uh, if totalitarianism uh, and really Marxism and, and socialism in particular, are allowed to prevail. The first book is by Monsignor Robert Hugh Benson called The Lord of the World. It was written in 1908. The second is by Aldous Huxley, Brave New World, which was published in 1932. And then finally, George Orwell's 1984, which was published in 
1949. Now, the, the reason why this kind of comes up is I've, I read 1984 this week, and it's ironic because there was a lot of irony going on uh, because it's probably the most famous of the three novels, but it's the one that I read the, the last. I read uh, Brave New World at least 10 years ago, and I read uh, Lord of the World just a, a couple of years back, four, maybe four or five years back. And um, my, my guess is you've heard of 1984, and there's a good chance you've heard of uh, uh, Brave New World, but probably not Lord of the World. Uh, Lord of the World was written, as I said, by Monsignor Hugh Benson, who was a Catholic priest, but who had previously been a member of the Church of England and had been a clergy member in the Church of England. And in fact, his father uh, had been the Archbishop of Canterbury. So when he entered the Roman Catholic Church, it became uh, uh, quite hot gossip in in England at that time that the son of a of an Archbishop of Canterbury would become Catholic. And uh, he wrote this book uh, because he was sincerely worried about the rise of Marxism and socialism in, in England. Uh, you know, we usually associate Marxism with the, with the, with the Russian Revolution of 1917. Uh, but indeed, there had been a, a Russian, an attempted revolution in 1905 in Russia, and also uh, in England, the the Labour Party at that time uh, was pretty open uh, in terms of its advocacy for uh, uh, for Marxist and, and socialist uh, change. And uh, there was a a worry that uh, socialists would take control of the of the British government and transform the society, not by way of revolution, but rather by way of uh, the ballot box, the parliamentary elections. And so Benson is actually looking about a century ahead. And he doesn't look at like this thing's going to happen all in one election or all in one moment. Uh, but he, he's actually from the early 20th century sort of projecting ahead to the end of the, of the 20th, beginning of the 21st, to what England and really the world could look like uh, under a, uh, a socialist uh, one-world uh, government and one world rule. Um, Huxley, writing in the early 30s, isn't so much preoccupied with political ideology as such, uh, but his book really has to do with the effects of technology and how technology uh, can be used by those in power to control and manipulate the population. And his really focus is on uh, the industrialization of society and uh, uh, the, the, the main uh, sort of uh, figure head in this uh, in this story is actually Henry Ford of all people, because Ford is the inventor or the developer you know, the, the invent the 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 uh, production line, the assembly line. But he perfected uh, the assembly line, and the idea was that the society of of a brave new world was very much sort of modeled after this sort of assembly line, uh, and 
each member of the society had their role to play and uh, they were to fulfill it to the best of their abilities. There was, you know, there's, he's ahead of his time on a lot of things. He's looking at social engineering. He's looking at kind of genetic engineering as well, because there are those who are genetically engineered just to be workers, almost like to be, uh, you know, worker ants in a, in a, in a nest uh, or drone uh, bees, worker bees in a, in a, in a, in a hive. And their sole purpose is to serve the good of the, of the, of the hide, uh, the hive. And he, actually people are engineered to have certain IQs so that they can perform certain jobs and to be kind of placed in their level. And uh, so it's not exact, I wouldn't call it exactly an, an attack on, Capitalism, but as we'll see, he does um, sort of comment on consumerism, on kind of materialism, Western materialism, as opposed to communist materialism, and uh, also on uh, how delayed gratification is frowned upon and how people are conditioned to seek immediate gratification uh, as a way of kind of calming themselves, but it's also, and keeping themselves satisfied and happy, but also as a way of keeping them pacified from really asking too many questions. And uh, 1984 is truly dystopian in the sense that it's this is a repressive society, unlike Huxley's where you have great technological advancement and actually there you know people have enough to eat and everything in the world of 1984 uh there is never enough food uh people are living in rather dank conditions even members of the party uh live with deprivation and rather than let's say pleasure and promiscuity being used uh as a form of control deprivation uh, is used uh, to control the people and a, uh, a network of spies and a spies that actually are sometimes the children in the family that have been conditioned to adhere to the ideology and to love what's called Big Brother, this kind of mythical leader who may or may not actually exist, but uh, whose allegiance is demanded uh, by the population. His unquestioning allegiance is demanded by the population. Now, quite often, uh, 1984 and Brave New World are compared and contrasted with one another. Lord of the World has pretty much been forgotten, uh, even though it was a hugely successful novel in the first part of the 20th century, not just among Catholics, but uh, among the reading public in general, uh, its memory has kind of faded a bit. Uh, it's, it amazed me because I, it's been, again, it's been a few years since I read it. So I did go to the Wikipedia page to kind of look at a synopsis and the page is rather large. Uh, I was actually kind of surprised. I was expecting maybe a little thumbnail or a little, you know, a, a brief, uh, entry on it, but actually the, 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 the Wikipedia entry on Lord of the World is rather substantial. And um, 
uh, in the last maybe 10 years, it's sort of received a second life uh, because it was quoted by uh, Pope Francis on at least two occasions uh, in the talks that he gave and possibly a homily that he gave. Uh, and basically, it was a book that he read when he was a, when he was a teenager and uh, one that had a, made a great impression on him. Also, previously, uh, Benedict uh, XVI, when he was Cardinal Ratzinger, actually made reference in a speech to Lord of the World. Uh, uh, Cardinal Ratzinger at that time was sort of commenting on uh, President a George H.W. Bush's uh, New World Order speech, and he found that that language uh, kind of troubling because it, it denoted the attempt to establish, uh, if not a one-world government, certainly uh, an order of, of power that that still has one part of the world, in this case the Western world, dominating uh, the rest of humanity. And he saw in it these echoes of uh, the world as described in Lord of the World. Now, as I said, in the last you know 70 years or so, uh, the Lord of the World has sort of faded a bit from public consciousness and hasn't been really as big a part of the culture. It's Brave New World and 1984, which are uh, more commonly compared and contrasted with one another. And the conventional wisdom is that Brave New World won out, uh, that we're not living in this, you know, dank, dark, uh, overtly repressive uh, world that is described by George Orwell, uh, but that we are living in this highly technological uh, world where entertainment is uh, used uh, to numb people's minds, where you know drugs are used to calm people's brains, and uh, quite frankly, where sex also could be seen uh, as used as a, a sort of narcotic, if you will, in the, you know, obviously in a metaphorical sense, uh, in order uh, just to keep people distracted and kind of always focused inward on their own wants and needs and not really concerned about the world that's going on around them. Uh, what I would suggest is that we kind of have a combination of the two, that it's not all kind of one or the other. Not just uh, 1984 and uh, Brave New World, but Lord of the World as well. I can really see three commonalities, at least. Uh, they're expressed in different ways in each of the, in each of the books, but there are un these underlying principles uh, are what really enable a totalitarian government in order really to take hold and control lives. First off, there's a breakdown of social bonds and making that make the, the, the state or the government or the leader the focal point of all loyalty and all dependency. And so any other social relationship, it, beginning with the family, is broken down 
or destroyed. Uh, in Brave New World, you have uh, people are born through uh, hatcheries. There, is, there are no natural births. Okay. Uh, everyone is, there's a, there's a scene at the beginning, there's a kind of a, I call it a montage, I don't know what the proper uh, term would be in terms of literary criticism, but the, there's a moving back and forth between two scenes. One is a group of people going through what's called the hatchery and shown how people are born. They're literally like born in glass jugs. And they're they're gestated in, in glass jugs, and it's contrasted with these two young women having a conversation with one another about what they're doing that weekend, and the the uh, you know one woman says to the other, "So you're seeing so and so tomorrow?" Oh yeah, I'm seeing so and so tomorrow. What's well, the that's the third time this this in the last two weeks that you've, you've seen him, I mean, people are going to start to talk. You need to start seeing more guys. You need to get out and, and not just, you know, tie yourself to one man. Okay. It's an, it's, it's a total inversion of, of how that conversation certainly would have went in 1932 and quite possibly would still go on today. Back then it was, you had a reputation if you were seeing a lot of guys uh, in the world of uh, Aldous Huxley, no, you're going to have a reputation if you only stick to one guy. Because promiscuity is a way of numbing people uh, to relationships, to keeping people from bonding with any one person in particular, and uh, to really dull uh, any sense of forming deep, intimate relationships. In 1984, uh, it's the same principle, but instead it's celibacy that is used by the party on party members uh, in order to, uh, again, keep them from getting close to anybody else, keeping them from being intimate with anybody else, uh, and so that all their energies go toward the party. And also this idea of breaking down family bonds. So that, again, in, in, in 1984, there are families. Some people are permitted to get married and have children, but for that specific purpose of having children. And basically, you have to go before the you know a government board and basically show that you really don't like the person you're marrying, that you're just really doing this out of the, the sense of duty. But the children that do come are totally educated and really indoctrinated by the state. And the children themselves are trained how to be spies to even hand their own parents in. So this idea is to keep people separated, to keep people on edge, to keep people from truly uh, forming family bonds and social bonds and loyalties that might tear them away from the loyalty they should have to the state. Lord of the World doesn't really go too deeply into that area, but it, it does definitely 
more than hint uh, at the fact that uh, marriage has sort of been abolished. Uh, and basically people are in, in free relationships and they can kind of move in and out of those uh, relationships as they, they will. Uh, I think that I don't want to get too deeply into this. I think there's a lot of reasons why uh, Benson, uh, Monsignor Benson wouldn't go too deeply down that, that path. Partly I think for propriety's sake, uh, considering he was a Catholic priest and also, you know, 1908, uh, there was still only so much you could really explore, uh, in turn in, in literature, uh, and be able to get your book published. So my, my guess is even if he could envision, uh, the sexual revolution, he would, would have been loath to want to, uh, kind of write too deeply about it. But there's still in, in all three, this idea of a breakdown of family, but also of, of these wider social bonds, you know, a, a a society is made up of all sorts of, a healthy society anyway, is made up of all sorts of uh, social and religious institutions. And, you know, today we, 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 we talk about people being members of different communities. We use this kind of, you know, online communities and uh, uh, different groups that they're, that they're a part of. Well, back, you know, Today we, we I don't know we you know we talk about the gamer community, but back maybe fifty years ago we would or sixty years ago we would talk about the Lions Club, or we would talk about the Knights of Columbus, or we would talk about these kind of intermediate uh, organizations, social organizations that was involved sometimes in charitable work. It wasn't just a group of people who who had common interests who kind of got together to, to feel, uh, you know, unified with others, which isn't a bad thing in itself. Uh, but actually, these groups and these organizations actually performed a, an important social function. Yes, we looked to the government for social services, but we didn't only look to the government for social services. And the government might not have been the first place that we looked to, but maybe these civic organizations that we had in our town or city as well, or something maybe we would look to first and then go to the government if, if uh, those civic organizations or religious organizations weren't able to fill the need. Uh, but here, all those things in all three of these situations, all those organizations are put to the side. Everything is the government. And the government is what we depend on, and the government is our big brother. Uh, the, the government is the lord of the world, okay, in, in other words. So all three of those books have those things in common. The second thing is education is exclusively uh, the, the province of the government. So related to that first idea of the breakdown of, of social and civic bonds, you have education and the socialization of children being primarily the job of the government. And if there are values being taught in schools which differ from the values of the home, well, the problem is the values of the home. And if parents have to be uh, kind of worked around, then they'll be worked around. And uh, in the case of 
1984, uh, if parents are to be handed in, they're to be handed in, because the first allegiance is to Big Brother. The first allegiance is to the party. The first allegiance is to the system. And then the manipulation of news and entertainment. Uh, the, the main character in uh, 1984 is a, a person by the name of, of uh, Winston Smith, and his job in the Ministry of Truth is to go back into back issues of the Times of London and make revisions as the party dictates. If something reported, let's say, five years ago is detrimental to the narrative that the party is trying to put forward today, uh, then our friend Winston is just instructed where to go back, what edition of the times, what section, what page, and how the revision should be made. Sometimes it's left up to himself to figure out how he's going to do it. And in fact, he's complimented on a number of occasions for uh, his creativity and his ability to effectively change the past. Um, in this way, as the, the slogan of one of the many slogans of the state goes, he who controls the present controls the past, and he who controls the past controls the future. So the idea, again, is that people's perceptions, uh, their knowledge of the past is completely kept uncertain. In the, in the world of uh, Brave New World, uh, history has just essentially been erased by the, through the banning of books. Uh, so, you know, you can't get your hands on, you know, Shakespeare is banned and any histories written, uh, you know, before the great war that had sort of brought civilization down to begin with have totally been, uh, erased. And, uh, there are some members, higher members in Brave New World that, you know, cast people at the highest cast are, uh, allowed to, uh, kind of read and see these things, uh, but certainly no one uh, of the lower classes, uh, even the relatively high classes, are allowed to look at any of this banned material because it would tune them into the fact that there is another way of living. And in each of, each of these stories, there are characters who understand that things aren't right, that things aren't the way they're supposed to be. Uh, and attempt to fight against it. Uh, but the thing is, is that none of them wins. You know, I don't want to give away the specific endings of each of these books, uh, but they're not happy endings. Let's put it that way. And it's not necessarily uh, uh, happy endings for the, you know, heroes or semi-heroes of these stories. In uh, Lord of the World, what we get is a somewhat ambiguous ending. And in fact, uh, Marxist and secularist critics of the time kind of read it, read the ending of uh, uh, Lord of the World as almost being a uh, denial of the second coming. But I think it's to, to have that, to have that interpretation is not really to understand 
how Benson is setting up his narrative and kind of the world he constructs. Uh, basically, the ending of the book brings you up to the end of the world as it is. Uh, the glory of the world, you know, so passic uh, transit gloria mundi, you know, so passes the glory of, of the world. Uh, but it's clearly bringing you to the point where Christ does intervene. It's just he doesn't describe that intervention. Um, there's there's another part of the the book where one of the characters, again, one of these characters uh, who understands that something's not right, who understands that there's a different way of living, and uh, but kind of falls into despair, goes to a uh, a euthanasia clinic. Now this is a young a young woman. This is not someone old and infirmed. Uh, you know, looking to end her, her, you know, her suffering. This is a, a young vital person, but yet who feels there's, you know, no, there's no future. And so she admits herself into this uh, euthanasia clinic. And again, as Benson describes her going in, because I believe that they use like a, almost like a lethal injection method, but it, it doesn't describe what she sees on the other side of the veil but it brings her right up to that veil uh, between life and death and describes, sort of hints at the wonder that, that she sees on, on the other side. So, yeah, uh, the, uh, you know, Benson really doesn't describe things that are, are supernatural in his book, but rather hints at them uh, uh, in, a more, in a more subtle way. Um, I'm going to kind of end it on this note, um, you know, uh, I could really go on and speak much more about all these books, but I, I, I think the, the basic message that I kind of want to leave you with is that I think, as I said, there is truth in all three of these books. I, I, I think we should be careful not to too easily dismiss 1984. Uh, that even though because we were not living uh, in this kind of bleak totalitarian uh, country that's described in uh, in 1984, uh, he prefigures, he foreshadows things like cancel culture, uh, the manipulation of the media, the manipulation of language. And I think along with the other two books, uh, the necessity to create divisions and to keep people at odds with one another and constantly in tension with one another and the populace in general uh, on edge. And so again, even though he, he may not, uh, you know, Huxley has it right uh, in terms of the use of pleasure and uh, the use of instant gratification and the the use of technology as ways of controlling the populace. Uh, uh, Orwell definitely has right these other aspects. It's just that we're living 
I believe at, at this point, in this strange mix of the two. But unlike either Brave New World or uh, 1984, what Benson sees is that no human effort by itself uh, is going to turn the tide. Uh, now, I'm, I'm not apocalyptic in the sense of I'm not, I don't know that we're living in the end times uh, necessarily. I, I kind of hold to that belief that the end times began with the death and resurrection of Christ and that we've been living, if you will, in the end times for the last 2,000 years. And the end, the end may come, our Lord may return uh, tomorrow, or he may take another 2,000 years. I don't know. But there's no human ideology that is going to create that brave new world. Uh, there is no uh, earthly power that is going to replace God. Uh, in his vision, the state doesn't just become uh, the all-powerful and all-demanding force in people's lives. Uh, the one who takes control of this one-world government essentially claims to be divine himself. He is the true Antichrist. That's really what the Antichrist is. He is someone who tries to put himself or herself in the place of God and make themselves God. And But we know better. We know that there is one Lord, there is one Savior, and it is Jesus Christ. Yes, we are called to work at building a world of peace and justice, of continually living a life of conversion and reform, but understanding that we ourselves, by our own power, really cannot make the world perfect. By our own power, we cannot eliminate sin and injustice, but it's only by surrendering to God, dying to our own egos, dying to our own wants and desires, and truly living a life of service for others, that we will be fulfilled and that society will be transformed. This time of Lent is our time of self-examination. It is our time to reflect. It is our time to begin to reform ourselves and to look and see how we ourselves are not living up to our call as disciples of Jesus Christ so that then we can turn and help to join people together to bind wounds and to heal the divide. Not to divide, but to join together. Not to seek to uphold a narrative, but to live the law of love. May our Lenten journey help us to grow ever in our love of Christ, love of God, and love of neighbor, and to truly seek the good of others before the good of ourselves. May God bless all of you. And until we meet again, God love you. Bye-bye.